struggles, innovation, going all in, not holding back, mindset, being a leader, paving their own way, putting the real in real estate, listing legacies, selling luxury. You have The Vault. Unlocking conversations in real estate today. We are live with The Vault. I'm your host, Jessica Hastings Lesbrance, and let me introduce my magical co-host, Alexa Miller, who we have on the show today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Matthew Petullo. Matthew is a partner at AP Romano Legal Professional Corp with offices in Vaughan and Bradford. He has been working in the industry for roughly 10 years, has been licensed for over eight years, and has had his own practice for about four years. So welcome, Matthew. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me here today. That's amazing. That is an incredible introduction as well. You know, eight years in the business, four years on your own. This is amazing. Yeah. So tell us, just start by telling us a bit about yourself and your background. Uh, well, yeah. So I, I uh, graduated from the University of Windsor uh, in 2014. Um, that's where I went for law school. Uh, from the get-go, I kind of knew I wanted to be involved in real estate law. So even throughout my articling and my focus uh, on the practical side of things, as well as in the classes, I kind of shifted more towards uh, that area of the law than others. And uh, I, I guess just since then, I, it turned out to be as good as what I thought it would be, or at least as enjoyable for me. And um, and so I just continued to focus mostly on that area, but we also do uh, offer other services at our firm as well. Very good, awesome. So, can you start by explaining what is a lawyer's job when representing both buyers and sellers? Very good question. <laughs> yeah, so um, I mean, it, it varies quite a bit. I mean, in the transactions where everything goes the way they're supposed to, um, mm -hmm. it could be just a matter of guiding first-time home buyers through the process of uh, the documents they're going to be signing, um, the terms of their mortgage, the implications of, um, you know, the way their names are being registered on title, the way their information is being entered, and just understanding their obligations, I guess, going forward as a homeowner on the buying side. Um, on the selling side, for the most part, we're just going to be ensuring that uh, anything that's on title is removed for the new buyers so that they're able to have title uh, free and clear, basically, aside from any mortgages they're going to be registering themselves. Um, but for the most part, in those in those types of transactions, it's a little bit uh, easier because uh, everything goes according to schedule. Um, when the transactions don't go the way they're supposed to go, um, it could be anything for um, on the buyer's side, uh, trying to get the buyers compensated for damage to the property if there was um, any damage that was done. Uh, from the time that the person had contracted for the property up until the point where uh, they have actually taken possession. Um, sometimes it involves negotiating extensions if the financing isn't ready for a buyer on time. And uh, on the flip side, on the seller side, you're also trying to navigate uh, whatever obstacles might be coming your way from the uh, purchaser side, just kind of reversed. Yeah. Well, there's always obstacles. And mm -hmm. even, you know, every deal is its own, really. And I'm sure it's the same with, um, you know, being a lawyer and having your own practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure exactly. it's 360s every day, like us. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the fun of it, right? Because it's not, uh, you're not getting the exact same thing every day. And uh, 
no two deals are the same, nor are, are any two clients. So it's good because it kind of keeps you on your toes and gives you something new every day, right? Yeah. And I love, for me, I love the experience. I love, you know, this happened or that happened. And I always want to know what happened in the end. So I know going forward, yeah, oh, I know yeah, how to manage that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Learning opportunity. So I'm going to talk a little bit about a title search, which you briefly touched on, but for anyone listening, that's a buyer or a real estate agent, a new real estate agent, can you explain what a title search entails and what it is? Yeah. So, um, so usually when the title search is going to be conducted, it's usually when you're representing the purchaser, um, the seller kind of allows the purchaser to satisfy themselves. So they'll be pulling a parcel, which is just basically the actual, electronic registered form of title ownership that you have and so when we pull that on the lawyers end, um, we basically get to see uh, the chain of ownership it shows any previous uh, owners or at least for the most part from any time that it was converted into the land title system instead of registry and so you'll get to see who owned the property you get to see what mortgages are on the property you get to see um, if there's any other instruments of concern. So sometimes there's things like a certificate of pending litigation or um, all these other, I guess, more complicated things. I won't get too much into it, but things that basically have to be removed from title. And so the, the reason why we do this is because the idea is the purchaser is supposed to be buying title without any of these things that would cloud title. And so we, discover what they are and we work with the seller's lawyer uh, to get them removed so that our client gets to have property free and clear. So when they go to sell in the future, there won't be uh, any issues for them to do that. Yeah. What would you say would be the number one thing you've noticed with title insurance that keeps coming up maybe with realtors or clients? Like, is there any consistent questions or things that people aren't aware of? Good question. Well, in, in title insurance, um, the one thing that causes issues sometimes are when people are signing under a power of attorney. Um, that's what I find. It's uh, not that it's an issue necessarily, but it's just that uh, they have a heightened level of scrutiny because there are certain things that uh, title insurance companies will look for, especially because uh, fraud seems to be on the rise. And so lawyers and title insurance companies alike, as well as the realtors, we're all kind of working together to try to prevent that, or at least, you know, put in as many fail safes as possible so that it makes it either very hard or impossible to commit frauds. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's important. Can you briefly explain to our listeners what title insurance is? Yeah. So title insurance, um, it kind of came about, I believe, early 2000s or thereabouts or at least it became prominent then. And um, historically what lawyers would do is they would have to, uh, prior to closing, they'd have to seek tax certificates, get bylaw clearance to make sure there's no bylaw infringements on the property. They'd have to get the utility, final utility readings. And all these things would cost money and time. Um, So whoever came up with title insurance, the idea was rather than pulling all these searches and, and having a lawyer bill at their hourly rate, you just insure against them. So what title insurance does is it protects the buyer in the event that someone later tries to commit fraud under their name. It protects the bank in case the buyer wasn't who they said they were and the bank will get frauded. It depends on the policies because different companies will have different nuances with the extent of their coverage and everything, but uh, it will also protect you if 
the seller didn't pay the taxes the way they said they did in the statement of adjustments. Um, the same with the utilities or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's super important. And it's, as far as I understand, it's not um, required in Ontario, but we, you know, it's recommended. Mm -hmm. it's, oh gosh. It's not expensive. Yeah, it's, yeah it, it's, it's not required, but some of the banks will, will require right. it. So if you're yeah. buying it uh, property free and clear, there's not necessarily a reason to put it on, but I would say 99.9% .9 of the transactions I've seen people use it. So yeah, I, I would imagine not. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just like cringing, thinking, oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> like what? Like think of all the things that could come up. Yeah, and you always think, yeah, it's free and clear. But I know there's been circumstances where no, we found this weird thing, mm -hmm. and you know, there's an easement or there's a shoreline road allowance. Or like, yeah, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's been instances where um, property boundary issues come up, and title insurance mm -hmm. sometimes can help with that as well. Yeah, so it depends on the company and the policy because each one of them have their own carve outs and everything. But uh, some companies do cover that, so it's okay. really it's really a matter of of the limitations of that company. But yeah, I'm, I personally, even for my own personal transactions, I always get it. I've I've got a, a vacant lot once for nine thousand dollars, and I still title insured it just because I seen what can happen. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, exactly. Better safe yeah. than sorry. It's important. Yeah. So what is something us realtors can do when we're drafting an agreement of purchase and sale? What is something we can do to make the lawyer's job a little bit easier, if anything? Um. Well, I mean, realistically, uh, communication is always good. If there's a, a unique clause or something that's out of the ordinary in a transaction, if a realtor is able to kind of identify that just to bring the lawyer's attention to it, it saves a lot of time, you know, rather than, you know, scouring over the entire agreement when a lot of the times, um, you know, some of the standard clauses are not necessarily something that a lawyer would have to review. Um, but, you know, just if a realtor were to give a heads up and say something like, you know, this deal is different because of this, or we have a special clause, or this deal is going to work out differently like this, at least the lawyer will know where to divert their attention to, and they could be a lot more efficient with, you know, seeing if everything is good on that front. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about lawyer review? Sometimes I feel there's mixed, you know, expectations or perceptions of what really does that entail on APS? Yeah. The condition um, of the lawyer review. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for, for the most part, um, in my experience anyways, um, a lot of the times, by the time I get a deal on a resale, it's already uh, been firmed up. Um, the only time that I'm usually reviewing a resale agreement it, uh, prior to it being firmed up is if there's a unique uh, circumstance or some kind of uh, encumbrance on title that, you know, the realtors flagged as, you know, let me let the lawyer review this first before we commit to this transaction. Um, where lawyer review happens more with the agreements and all that will either be uh, status certificate reviews prior to the purchase of a condo um, or pre-construction agreements during the 10-day cooling period. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. Sometimes I'll throw in like if, so if I pull up the legal description and I see that there's some sort of easement or something like that on title and I'm not comfortable with it, or I don't understand it, I'll recommend to my clients that I put in a condition for their lawyer to review it just to protect them. Um, you know, and typically there's not much to it, but I yeah. just like to, you know, the protection is huge in that sense for the client. So yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's good that uh, it's good that you do that because, yeah, it's it's as simple as then flipping it over to the lawyer and the lawyer can just say, yeah, you're good to go or, you know, yeah. we should recommend they remove it or anything like that. 
Yeah. It's a fiduciary duty to protect our best interests of the clients. So I, yeah, absolutely. Um, Is there anything that you would describe that is a frustration that you find with realtors when you're managing uh, businesses and clients with them? Good question. (laughs) Tell us. Sure there is. (laughs) Be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're Islam. I mean, it depends, right? I, I think the one thing, well, for the most part, uh, it's not that much of an issue. I just think the one thing is uh, sometimes um, on closing day, if a client uh, enters a property and the property is not in a condition that they, uh, you know, that they expected, you know, I, I know everybody likes to rely on the broom swept clause condition. And so uh, what I do tell realtors that I work with is, we will we will go to bat uh, for the client and we'll ask that um, you know either something be done to remedy the situation or some kind of compensation to the client depending on how bad the damage is. But I also caution them that once the deal has closed, um, the client has to decide if they would if they want to go forward and sue the person for the extent of the damage and if it's if it's worth it for them because. I do let them know contractually, yes, uh, you know, they have an obligation to deliver the property to you in a clean condition, um, in the condition that, you know, you contracted for. So that might have been two or three months before the actual closing date. Um, But I also just ask that they can try to kind of set the expectations, because if there's just a little bit of dirt on the counter, it might not be worth suing. And oftentimes the other lawyer will just ignore us when we do send out the uh, information to them so yeah yeah we've been there like we've done mm-hmm. dump runs i've helped load yeah. trailers and tractors and cleaned and yeah <laughs> i've had uh, i had a deal recently where i did my best to ensure as per the contract everything was gone that needed to be gone um it was a divorce situation there was stuff left that i at the end of the day couldn't deal with myself so i called the seller's lawyer i was representing the seller and i just gave them a heads up i'm like there's probably going to be some issues with this um, just letting you know, and they were, they seemed to appreciate that. So, yeah. and it, it worked out, it closed. Oh, yeah. That's good. That's good. At least. <laughs> yeah. So uh, another quick question, is it kind of normal that when a, a deal closes that the lawyer often calls the realtor to let them know it closes? Sometimes I find we're in limbo and we either get a call or sometimes we don't. So I was wondering what is kind of, you know, across the board, how you manage that? Um, so realistically, it's it's more on specific circumstances. Some people want to be contacted, uh, like there's some of the realtors want to be contacted. Like the client will always get contacted. We'll send out an email. Um, but if a realtor specifically requests, hey, you know, can you just put us on the chain? Um, you know, we'll put we'll include them in the email if they want to be. Or alternatively, sometimes a realtor will just call after saying, hey, did everything go smooth? We say, yeah, we're going to close in about 30, 45 minutes. We're just doing the banking. You say, okay, great. And then everybody's kind of on the same page. So it kind of varies. It just depends on uh, on what each realtor wants, I guess, right? Yeah, that's good. Because we've had clients go to a property when we didn't know it didn't close. <laughs> well, well. Right? No, I've never had that, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So what would you say your biggest successes in your business would be? Um, well, I mean, first and foremost, uh, starting a business, I think for anybody who starts any business is a success in and of itself. Um, just because it's, it's a real adjustment. Um, when you're used to uh, working a job, you know, every two weeks, you know what you're going to get paid, you know what your bills are, you can kind of budget. Um, and when you go at first and you, and you start, uh, 
in your own practice or your own business or anything really, um, you know, it's kind of an adjustment because you think, okay, well, my bills are still coming in every month, but uh, how do I know how much money I'm going to make each month, right? Um, but then once you uh, get into it and you start, uh, you know, I guess, believing in yourself and if you offer a good product, you can start seeing, um, you know, the fruits of your labor in the sense that it's a different lifestyle and you definitely have to be some degree of a self-starter. Um, you know, it's not for everybody. Um, but that being said, I think uh, that's definitely something that uh, I think anyone who's gone off and started their own business should be uh, proud of. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I agree. It's incredible. It's massive. It's this huge thing, especially with the law. Like how many years, eight years, how many years of school is that? Seven, eight? Oh, um, well, undergrad was supposed to be uh, four, but the school I was at went on strike. So it stretched out another year. Um, I took a year off to save up money to pay for law school because it's not cheap. And then uh, three years of actual law school and one year of articling after that. Yeah. So like that is a long commitment, right? You know, you put some things on pause in your life. I had to do that with my school too, because it's your drive is what you want, but in the long run, it's worth it. Yeah. Very true. This is kind of a, a, a big question. Um, but what are some of the biggest things realtors need to look out for when protecting their clients in a real estate purchaser sale? Just some examples. Well, if, okay, if you're representing the buyer, let's say, for example, um, I definitely caution people, um, in terms of buying a property without conditions, Mm -hmm. um, I know a while back when the market was a little bit crazy, it was the only way people could get um, properties in in Toronto or the GTA. Um, But then you hear some horror stories. Uh, Some people would have gone in with no conditions and then they close the transaction and they discover there's a crack in the foundation or there's something else that requires, you know, remedying after the fact. Um, It's important that people you know, obviously, if you don't have a choice and you have to go in with no conditions, uh, just be aware of the risks. But obviously, very important that you do get someone, um, someone professional to inspect the property to protect your interests. Um, the other thing, too, obviously, again, is the financing. Some people think a pre-approval is uh, gold, even even in uh, pre-construction transactions where it would be two years before definitely make sure the financing is in place because if it's not, um, you know, the costs of not being able to close on time can be quite significant depending on uh, how much longer they need. And even if the, uh, the seller's willing to entertain an extension. Yeah. Um, it's so know. important, right? Yeah. Like I know for us, we get them to fill out a form. If we think they shouldn't go, you know, and they want to go no conditions, we get them to acknowledge in some way, shape or form that, yep, we advise them and they're going against what we're advising them and yeah. they're going in. It's funny because as a seller's agent and we get a firm offer, of course, it's the best type of offer to receive, yeah. <laughs> but as a buyer's agent, it's the scariest type of offer to draft yeah. because <laughs> risk involved yeah. with it, I, you know, it's great if it sells firm quickly it's you know essentially an easy sale but you have to really reiterate to them the risk of it and and we recommend of course talking to a lawyer before before signing off on a firm offer and not many do unfortunately yeah but that's all we can do right yeah Yeah. it's just excitement right yeah and it's you know our due diligence to make sure that lawyer review you know like do your due diligence do the home inspection yeah Mm -hmm. there are ways what would you say your biggest struggle is in your business? Um, I think I think the 
I think what is what's difficult again in most businesses um, is just trying to separate um, the operations and the business development because when you're trying to do everything yourself, um, you know you can't divide yourself into three or four people and there's not enough hours in a day. Um, so it's really important and I think uh, you know I discovered this that you get really good staff and you're able to, um, effectively delegate um, the work that you're doing because as much as some people think well you know I don't want to pay someone else to do this um, you know you also limit your ability to take on more clients or to properly service the clients that you do have and everything so um, I think I think it's and it's definitely difficult to to find good help uh, but when you do you have to hold on to it right so I agree. Yeah. yeah. It's absolutely. leverage, leverage, baby. We talk about it all the time. Right? <laughs> like <laughs> if that was yeah. the number one thing I would teach anybody is leverage. Like the first day you start your business. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's working on the business and working in the business. And I have always found that struggle too. Like when Matthew was just talking about that, eventually we'll get there. So just holding that trust and not going with the flow. Yeah. Okay. Another a question that I've always had for lawyers how many deals can you close in a day? Like, what does a closing yeah. day look like for you for a deal? How many deals can you get done in one day? Um, well, it depends how <laughs> soon. to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Every time I call them, I'm like, I'm, I can't call you back. I'm too busy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it. I think it's hard to put an exact number on it because it depends when the deals are received too, right? If you get, I don't know, let's say, 50 deals that you know are closing on the same day a month from now it'll be a crazy closing day but if you have enough lead up time to that you can definitely get it done if you're getting 50 deals the day before closing on all of them it's probably not going to happen right and um i've had that sometimes where um clients forgot to get the lawyer involved and you get a call saying hey uh, i know today is august 1st but we have a deal that we need to close on august 4th can oh you God. do it the answer is yes, but Double. if 50 people are doing that, no. So it's, wow. you know, it's obviously on our end, the, the earlier we have it, the better, because then we can just kind of uh, arrange our schedule accordingly, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what does, for anyone listening, well, and for myself, like what does, can you explain the process of closing out a deal um, on both sides, whether you're representing the seller or the buyer? Yeah, so um, I'll start with the buyer side because there's usually more uh, moving parts on that side. Um, typically for us, the process starts kind of once the uh, realtor has sent us over the deal. And um, at that point, what we like to do is we like to get information from the client, just contact information, um, emails, anything like that. Um, and we also like to find out who their, um, who their bank or their mortgage broker is. Um, just so that we can also basically have everything we need to begin communicating with everyone. Um, and so we, we basically just advise the client that we'll be opening the file and we'll be gathering more information a little bit closer to closing. Um, the other thing too, that's important that we get at that stage is usually finding out who the seller's lawyer is. Um, just because sometimes we don't get that. And, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to track it down after if, uh, if the realtor is hard to get a hang of or anything like that. But, um, once we have that information, usually at that point, there'll be a little bit of radio silence for the client, just because you can't really start your title searches until the requisition date. And you have to do it closer to the closing date. 
Um, what will happen at that point, let's say about a week to closing, we'll begin either have the uh, mortgage instructions already or we'll be uh, harassing the client to get their mortgage person to send it to us. And um, we'll be able to start putting together the file. So we'll be able to get an idea of how much money the client's going to need to bring in for closing. We're going to prepare the documents that have to be executed for the mortgage, uh, for the transfer of title, things like that. And then we arrange um, signing with the client, which nowadays we can either do uh, virtually um, over Zoom or WhatsApp or any of the video platforms um, or in person if some people still prefer that or if the bank mandates that you have to do it in person. Uh, from that point on, the client will have delivered us the funds and signed the documents. And then we just wait on closing day for the bank to wire us the funds or deliver the funds to us. We then provide that to the seller's lawyer. Once the seller's lawyer confirms that we've paid enough to them, they release the deed. We register it. Our client owns the property. Their client gets the money and the deal's completed at that point. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you for taking us through that. Because I've always, I mean, we know as realtors kind of mm -hmm. what the process is, but a lot of people don't. Um, now, leading from that, I have another question because I ran into this recently with a deal. Um what happens if the bank doesn't get the money to you in time mm -hmm. for closing? Like, so recently I had buyers, the money was lined up, but the bank almost didn't get them the funds in time and they almost couldn't close. And, you know, to my understanding, that's putting the, the buyer at risk of breach of contract, but it's the bank's fault. How, like, have you ran into that? And what, what, what is the outcome? Yeah. So technically the contract is between the buyer and the seller, right? So when that yeah. happens, um, depending on the nature of the transaction, depending if it's been extended already or not, we usually like to ask for an extension on behalf of the uh, buyer. So the, the seller is only concerned about their contract with the buyer because they're the ones that have the contract. So more often than not, I find that sellers are willing to negotiate some kind of an extension if the bank is not ready to fund by a certain day. Um, and at that point, the, the extension will usually come with costs. It might include um, extra legals for the seller's lawyer, uh, per diems or interest for the existing mortgage that the seller has, um, or any other costs that they might incur as a result of this extension. So there'll be a cost. Um, and then at that point, I mean, if the buyer feels that it's the bank's fault that the mortgage didn't fund on time, they can try to get recourse from the bank after on their own. But for yeah. us... It's our, our job to try to reach some kind of a compromise so the buyer doesn't lose their deposit or their ability to close this purchase. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. I'm like, if if they don't grant an extension, which, it, you know, it'd be kind of silly if they didn't, unless they have a buyer with cash right there ready to go, but which is rare. Like, I mean, that doesn't really happen. Um, so I just didn't know what the outcome was if it's, you know, like you said, it's between the, the seller and the buyer essentially, but what, but what recourse does the buyer have yeah. um, with the bank is what my question was. So Yeah, well, yeah. well they, they'd have to probably sue them and then uh, like a court yeah. would decide, you know, who is at fault because uh, there, there's so many moving parts that, you know, maybe maybe the buyer was actually at fault. Maybe they delayed getting documents to the bank or something like mm -hmm. that, right? So it's very yeah. fact dependent, right? Yeah. Yeah, I have another question. So when I know we talk a lot, a lot about, you know, sellers, lawyers, buyers, lawyers, obviously we need some healthy relationships with other lawyers who we work with, you know, in the area and around. How do you feel when, you know, one of your, maybe a main client who's a realtor 
kind of uses different lawyers. I know we do to support them and maintain different relationships. So what's your perspective on that? Um, I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, everyone is free to use anyone they want to use. Uh, for me, if I have a working relationship with uh, realtors or mortgage agents or anyone like that, um, I understand that sometimes the, the client will go somewhere else, but I still try to provide support, um, you know, in the form of uh, if a question was to come up or a circumstance that they wanted to ask about, um, I still don't mind helping. But I mean, you know, obviously, uh, you like you like when you get the business and you like to be able to do it. But um, I think over time, if you provide a good enough product, the more more and more of the clients will just kind of gravitate towards you, or more people, um, you know, send their files your way. Yeah, I guess we find in our area where everyone's busy and we don't have as many. Um, yeah, we only have so many lawyers. options yeah. around here. Yeah, and everyone's jam-packed busy mm -hmm. well yeah yeah i can imagine but the, the beauty of it now anyways is with the uh with the virtual signings and all that it's kind of easier to have a bigger outreach right so mm -hmm. so in our so me for example i mean we're licensed in ontario as realtors but we typically i stick to my area because that's what i know is that the same for lawyers or do you just like if somebody called you from north bay wanting you to put wanting you to close the deal do you take anything on or do you stick to your area or how does that work with lawyers yeah. um, with lawyers it's less about the area because in Ontario um, the underlying title search and, and all that kind of stuff is is somewhat the same regardless of where in Ontario you are because we're under the same uh, registry system right. um, okay. so for us we've we've had clients in North Bay we've had clients in Windsor we've had clients all over um, it's less about the area. I think, I think with realtors, it's more territorial like that in the sense that, uh, you know, if you're more familiar with an area than a different realtor, then there's more, uh, you know, you'd have more knowledge specific to that area. But when it comes to the legal side of things, uh, the law works the same, no matter where the property is located. Yeah. Good point. That mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. I love how you can go virtual so you can just access so much more, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. This was a great episode. Thanks for all your insight and advice. Um, for anybody that wants to contact you, where can we find you? Uh, so usually for me, the best place to reach me is on my email. That's um, mpatulo, M-P-A-T is in Tom, U-L-L-O, at aprlawyers.ca. Awesome. awesome. And we'll make sure to post all of your information in the bio. Yep. So thanks That's again, great. Matthew, and take care. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that's the vault.